Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Laura Purcell on her latest novel, The Whispering Muse. Laura Purcell is a former bookseller living in Colchester, Essex, with her husband and pet guinea pigs. She is the author of six previous novels, among them gothic novel The Silent Companions, which was a Radio 2 and Zoe Ball ITV book club pick, and The Shape of Darkness, winner of the inaugural Fingerprint Award for Historical Crime Book of the Year. Her short story, The Chillingham Chair, was included in the Haunting Season anthology, which was an instant Sunday Times bestseller. She also wrote Roanoke Falls, a dramatic podcast for Realm, working with John Carpenter and Sandy King Carpenter. Today we're going to be talking about Laura's latest novel, which is The Whispering Muse. Laura, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So tell us first of all how you would describe The Whispering Muse. Well, The Whispering Muse is set in a Victorian theatre and it follows Jenny from the costume department. Now she's um, been sent to spy on upcoming actress Lilith Erickson, who's been dazzling the crowds with a seemingly a superhuman talent. But as Jenny gets to know Lilith more, she begins to suspect that maybe a dark pact lies behind this talent and that it might have repercussions not only for Lilith, but for everybody at the theatre. So tell us some more about Jenny. Who is she when we first meet her? She's the narrator of the story. It's a first-person narration. So we, we see the story from Jenny's perspective. And tell us what the situation is that she's in at the beginning of the book. So Jenny's um, led quite a difficult life. Um, Her father left when she was young. Her mother's passed away and she's got three younger siblings to look after. She was previously working as a maid, but then she was fired from that because of something her elder brother did. Her elder brother stole from her employer and he's, he's run out on the family, run off to America to start a new life and kind of left her to pick up the pieces. So at the start of the novel, she's quite desperate. She's got no job. She's trying to make ends meet. And she hasn't got a reference from her former employer to get some more work. So she's offered a job by the former employer of her brother before he ran away at the Mercury Theatre. And it seems like a dream come true because it's really good money. It's a really interesting job. Um, She's always been fascinated by the theatre. But obviously the catch, the catch of this job is that she has to spy on one of the actresses. So she's 
already um, sort of making a part of her own with the theatre's owner. So this is Mrs. Dyer, the wife of the, uh, well, she's, I guess it's her money. So she's really the owner of the <laughs> yes. theatre, but the, um, the theatre is managed by her husband. So tell us something more about her, who she is and why she might want to hire Jenny. It's all a bit of a tangled web. So um, Mrs. Dyer was a um, an heiress and she married a poorer man um, and they've started this theatre together. And as you say, being her husband, he has kind of control over the money and the theatre, but she feels a deep sense of ownership in it because it was her money that bought it. And Lilith Erickson, this fantastic actress, is his protégé, but she's noticed that her husband's paying a lot of attention to Lilith and she's very jealous of that. As the book goes on, you find out she's got other reasons for this jealousy, including her mistreating Mrs. Dyer's favourite actor. And as the book goes on, she gets more and more reasons to be jealous of Lilith. So Jenny finds herself in quite an awkward position because she's making friends with Lilith, getting to know her better. But in the same way that Lilith is Mr. Dyer's protégé, she's very much the protégé of Mrs. Dyer and um, reliant on her, her goodwill for her to keep her job and keep her family with the roof over their head. So tell us a bit more about Lilith Erickson then. So she's this actress, as you said, she's the uh, the new leading lady at the theatre. She's um, Mr. Dyer's protégé. And tell us something about where she comes from. So she seems to have quite a sketchy background from what Jenny can tell. Conversations with her seem to imply that she might have been illegitimate. She certainly doesn't seem to have any family or friends. She seems quite isolated. She used to work with an actor called Eugene Greaves, who was also very brilliant. But at the beginning of the book, Jenny sees this actor die quite horribly on stage. Uh, so there's there's this mystery about their connection. And Lilith is is obsessed with becoming the greatest actress. Uh, she's very reliant on the theatre for uh, feelings of love and um, support. She's obsessed with becoming a great actress and it affects everything she does. So there's a, I guess, a fourth character that I'd I'd like to talk about who... <laughs> Well, maybe features in the book, maybe not. We won't give mm-hmm. too much away about what's obviously what's going to happen with the story. But I'm talking about Mel Pomeney. Yeah. Um, so tell us who, I mean, I guess in not in the story, but in um, Greek myth, who she was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always been fascinated by the, uh, the theatre masks that appear, you know, in theatres, the comedy and tragedy masks. And I remember a long time ago, I was sort of looking to think, like, what was the name for those masks? Are they just called theatre masks? And I, I found out that the, um, you know, the smiling one represents comedy and the comic muse Thalia. And um, the frowning one represents tragedy and the tragic muse Melpomene. So I really love this idea of, of having a tragic muse because I love, I love tragic plays. I really love Shakespeare's tragedies and I've really got a fascination for them. So I, I love this idea of, of the muse being a, a sort of physical presence, being able to, in a very sort of phantom of the opera kind of way, being able to influence um, someone's acting. So, yeah, like you said, it's not, it's very much my version of Mel Pomeney. And there's some questions about whether it really is her in the book. In terms of the actual, you know, the Greek muse, again, she's quite a shadowy figure herself. There's not an awful lot I could find out about her, but she was originally the muse for song and dance, which Seems quite a big change to go from that to tragedy. So, yeah, it was really fascinating finding out all the different little myths and, and how they would changed over the years. 
but it's yeah it's very much not a classical greek myth retelling um it's my own version of her so the mercury theater which is incredibly vividly recreated in the book tell us something about this place describe it for us so I actually named it after my local theatre in Colchester, which is also called the Mercury. And um, yeah, it's I mean, it's a wonderful place. I've always loved the theatre. And I think the old Victorian theatres are amazing. You know, when you go to them, they might not actually be that comfortable or that convenient in terms of toilets and things. I was in the um, the Harold Pinter Theatre yesterday, which was um, built in the 1880s, which is kind of around the time my book is set. And it's just, you know, it's so gorgeously decorated. But it was quite impractical in the balcony with a very little leg room. But I, I think it was a, a real escape for Victorian people to go there, especially sort of with working classes who would be either be, you know, up in the gods or at the back in the pit. Just seeing colours and, and effects and a sort of portal to life that you wouldn't really get to see in your sort of everyday life. So it's it's very much a place of of magic and wonder but there's this dark undercurrent as Lilith begins to act there that suggests it's kind of all turning a bit to rot and uh, and ashes as as her career progresses. You paint a really vivid portrayal of how these theatres actually work all the various different people and the various mm. levels of the theatre and tell us something about uh, the research you did into Victorian theatre for the book. Yeah I did I did a lot <laughs> And it was probably about two years ago that I did all this research. So um, I'm sorry if I'm a bit sketchy on remembering all of the things that I've read. But I read, you know, a lot of accounts of how everything would be set up. And most interestingly, I read memoirs of um, two big actresses of the time. One was Ellen Terry and the other one was um, Sarah Bernhardt, who's a French actress. And it really sort of came alive through their memoirs of, of seeing how they'd lived their day-to-day life. And it was really interesting to see the different approaches um, because Sarah Bernhardt was a, a tragic actress mainly. She was such a fun character. She was uh, sort of a, a typical diva and she used to get into terrible trouble with her managers and, and throw fits of rage where she'd get so angry that she'd faint or she'd spew blood. She really gave them hell from what I could see. <laughs> and um, And the public very much saw her as a, a kind of, a mythical kind of vampire figure on stage, whereas Ellen Terry was the opposite. She was uh, seen as in very soft and womanly roles, and she was, you know, considered like the public's darling. Just you know, this really nice, soft, angelic, <laughs> angelic sort of womanly presence. So that really opened my eyes to life inside the theatre and, and just how how women were treated as well. That was something that really fascinated me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Purcell about her new book, The Whispering Muse. And Laura, you just mentioned that the research you did in the theatre took place a couple of years ago. In the acknowledgements to the book, you talk about how this book started in a very different place and has changed a lot over the course of the writing of it. So can you tell us something about how that book came together? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Um, and I was writing it sort of through through lockdown and through some very difficult personal circumstances. I knew I wanted to write a book about the theatre, a creepy theatre, because of my love for it. And also um, I'd kind of pitched a book to my publisher as having a Phantom of the Opera vibes. Um, so I knew I wanted to write spooky theatre. But when I first started off thinking about it, I wanted more Victorian plays to take um, take precedence in it. I was concentrating very much on popular plays of the time and also on something called The Ghost Melody, which was my original title. In my research, I came across uh, this play called The Corsican Brothers that had a ghost in it. And there was a specific tune written for when the ghost appeared and it became very popular in Victorian times. And I was trying to tie that in with my story and the different trapdoors in the stage, because I also found out that the trapdoors were named for specific plays. So there was the Corsican trap, which this ghost in the Corsican Brothers glides up to the music. There was the vampire trap, which was designed uh, for the play The Vampire, in which he disappears down at the end. And another one called the star trap that they shoot people up through. And there was the grave trap, which was named for Hamlet because it's what they would use for peering over Yorick's grave. So I had all these these things I wanted to tie together. And I, I found out that they sometimes called the uh, understage area hell. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got all these gothic things like ghost things. But I was trying to put too much into it. And it, it just kind of stalled. And I kept stopping and starting again. And I I talked about it with my agent and she sort of pointed out that the main story was kind of in something that had happened in the past in in my draft I'd got to. She said, the the really interesting part is these characters who don't really 
appear. So I, I rethought the whole thing around them and and then I refocused it and I found um, you know, a really fascinating and tragic sort of tidbit from the past that really solidified my ideas for the novel. Um, and it was to do with an opera singer who was called Frederick uh, Federici. And he he died in 1888 in a theatre. He died in these really tragic circumstances. So um, he was playing in the opera Faust, which, as, as most people know, is about um, someone who makes a deal with the devil. Um, and he was playing the part of the devil, um, Mephistopheles. You know, he gave a great performance. But at the end of the play, the devil was meant to go through the trap door back to hell. And he got to that bit, went through the trap door, um, and at that moment had a fatal heart attack. And and they took him to the green room and tried to revive him. But, you know, he'd he'd died at that really, um, you know, awful moment of meant to be plunging back to hell. Um, so that really got my mind turning. And I, I started to think about, you know, what would it be like if a, an actor had made a kind of Faustian pact for success? So the book is structured following the... I guess the the seasons of a of of a year in the um in the theatre as they put on various different plays. So we start yeah. with Macbeth. Um, <laughs> we we end up with I wasn't going to mention them, but you've done it now because it, it, it does <laughs> it is sort of the theme of the novel. Um, yeah. But it ends up with um Doctor Faustus. No, with Faust. Yeah. Not Doctor Faustus is the is the version of it that Eugene is is that dies in at the beginning of the novel. Yeah. We end with Faust, and um, they go through. Romeo and Juliet, but also another tragedy, the Duchess of Malfi, which I think is probably the one of all of those that people would be least familiar with. Yes. Um, so would you just give us a bit of a, a bit of a taste of what the Duchess of Malfi is? Yeah, I had to get that in there um, because I started it at A-level and I just fell in love with it. I just think it's really brilliant. It's a play by John Webster, you know, kind of maybe a little bit, kind of a contemporary of Shakespeare a bit, a few sort of years out, but um, it's a revenge tragedy about a woman who is a widow and a wealthy duchess. She falls in love with her servant and marries him in secret. But she's got two very jealous brothers. One is a cardinal and one is um, is her twin brother, Ferdinand. And between them, um, they're so jealous for like the uh, honour of their family that they, they conspire to, to sort of torture and emotionally torture and in the end have her killed. And it's about someone seeking revenge for that. It's such a powerful play. It's got, you know, echoes of, of things like Othello. But, you know, it's also tremendous fun. It's got some great comedy moments as well. And it was a play I really loved. And it's, you know, it's full on revenge tragedy. There's lots of murder and blood and gore. And um, I would really urge anyone that hasn't, you know, read it or, or seen it to watch it. You can actually um, rent it on Globe Player. There's a an online a subscription. Oh, it's not really a subscription service because you can pay as you go, but, um, you know, like an online access theatre, the Globe Player, you can watch all kinds of um, past productions of, of Shakespearean plays. I think Dr. Faustus is on there as well, actually. <laughs> but I'd really recommend it to anyone because it's you know it's not as well known as Shakespeare but I feel it deserves to be because it's amazing. Can we just talk about your I guess your love of writing gothic fiction in general Mm. the book is is it's great it's spooky but it's also it's also quite violent there's some really good (laughs) gory bits in it as well um just tell us something about writing this sort of thing. Yeah I mean I um I've got very mixed tastes and, you know, whilst I do love happy things and romance as well, I'm also a big horror fan. 
And when I wrote The Silent Companions back in what was 2017, it was published. Yeah, the original draft of that was very much a horror novel when I, I saw myself as, as going into horror writing. But there is quite a lot of snobbery about horror writing in the literary world. And they tend to be kind of okay with you doing ghosts, but not really anything else like vampires or, <laughs> or anything along those lines. So um, I've kind of fallen into this more gothic niche, which is, is very interesting to me because it's about duality and sort of liminal spaces, things, things being neither one thing or the other. And I really enjoy that uh, from a psychological perspective, because whilst it's really satisfying to have something like a crime novel where everything is explained at the end and tied up with a bow, in real life, you don't really get many situations like that. You know, everybody has a different perspective on things that happened. And you kind of have to look at the evidence and decide what you're going to believe. So what I like to do in my novels is, especially when they deal with the supernatural, is to have sort of two explanations for what could have happened. One of them, you know, will be a ghostly resolution to it. But I'm very aware that, you know, I have a lot of readers that won't be satisfied with that. And so I also like to have a psychological explanation for what happened and that you could look at both explanations and they'd both be equally plausible. And you sort of have to decide for yourself which one it was. In thinking about influences in Gothic fiction, obviously there there are real obvious classic touchstones for mm. this. Are there more contemporary Gothic writers that you, that you like? Yeah, I mean, the good thing about the Gothic is it's just so... It's such a broad genre, really. You know, you, you have the Victorian Gothic and the female Gothic, which I tend to focus on. But, you know, you've got Southern Gothic, you've got Urban Gothic, you've got, uh, you know, the more I look into it, you've got all kinds of uh, Gothic writing I hadn't even thought about. Um, but like in the modern day, I think, you know, no one does it better than Sarah Walters. She does amazing novels that have this element of otherworldliness to them, especially her book Affinity. That was incredible. It's about a, um, a woman that's in prison and she's a, a spirit medium and uh, there's a lady visiting her and is trying to investigating her claims about being a spirit medium and she starts off very skeptical but she gets drawn into this this dark web of deceit. Susan Hill has done some great gothic as well, Victorian gothic, like The Woman in Black, which is a, a huge, huge influence on me. That was the first sort of book that really scared me. You said you're a horror fan as well, and I cannot obviously let you go without asking you what it was like to work with John Carpenter then. So um, tell us something about the podcast. Oh, I guess it's such an amazing opportunity um, to work on Roanoke Falls. I, I was approached by Realm, who were partnering um, with the Carpenters to, to do a podcast. And they kind of came to me with the story and what they wanted. And I, I kind of had to do sort of a writing audition in a way that I had to get approved by John Carpenter and Sandy Carpenter. And that, I mean, that was hugely nerve wracking. <laughs> um, but I gave it my all and um, and it got approved. And, and then the series, I did a pilot and that got greenlit. So, yeah, it was it was just really it was a huge boost for me. You know, although I didn't get to work directly with the Carpenters, it was always so like amazing when when they approved something and said they liked it because I just I felt that sort of glow of of having you know your horror horror icon <laughs> approve of something you've written but I feel that maybe because Roanoke Falls it's kind of like a historical slasher it's set around the time of the original Roanoke settlement you know it's got a historical flavor but I you know wouldn't say it's entirely historically accurate <laughs> and you know and someone is stalking the camp and, and killing people. So I got to 
sort of flex my horror wings and go full gore on that one. So I think <laughs> people sort of say to me that The Whispering Muse has probably got more sort of blood in it than um, than my other novels. And I, I feel, you know, some of that is natural in like the time of the theatre and because of the themes and, and the revenge tragedies. But I also feel like maybe I was still in um, John Carpenter slasher mode while, <laughs> while writing it. <laughs> It's also as good as any answer to what happened at Roanoke anyway, because nobody well, that's knows. It, that's it. That's the great thing about a mystery, isn't it? And, you know, it, it was huge fun to write. I really did. I really did enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, that was, it was nice to do something that was just pure, pure horror. <laughs> to finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to read you a bit from The Whispering Muse when Lilith starts uh, to display her amazing talent. Applause thundered through the auditorium. Shouts of bravo came from the stalls. Boys in the gallery stuck their fingers in their mouths and whistled. Thanks to Lilith, it hadn't been a play. It was an assault on the senses, a feverish malady. Cast reappeared to a wild ovation, but the curtain calls were for Lady Macbeth and Lady Macbeth alone. She stood dazed on the apron of the stage, as if she couldn't quite comprehend what she'd done. A bullseye channeled the limelight full upon her face. She squinted and raised her hand to shield her eyes. A somnambulist roused from a dream. She was still wearing the nightgown from the out-damned spot scene. It had caught on the sleeve. There was a rent in the arm I'd have to sew up before tomorrow. But I couldn't think of tomorrow. I couldn't think of anything except what I'd just witnessed. The cool boy handed Lilith a bouquet of flowers. Perspiration gleamed from her bone-white skin. As I watched, beads of blood formed at her right nostril and trickled in a stripe to her lip. At last, the curtain came down. Lilith tottered off stage and lent her full weight against me. I shuddered. She smelled of sweat and something else, something rotten. Silas, do you have those smelling salts? I asked. But Silas was backing away, his eyes wary, leaving me saddled with the corpse of Lady Macbeth. Blood was streaming now, dripping down her white nightgown. I pulled out my handkerchief and held it under her nose. Lilith draped her arm over my shoulder. Her eyes were glazed. I would practically have to carry her to the dressing room. What had happened to her on that stage? I couldn't get the image out of my head. Lady Macbeth asking demons to fill her. Was it some invocation to her beloved Melpomene? Whatever she'd done, it had worked. And that terrified me most of all. I propped Lilith on the stool. She couldn't look up at me. She seemed to have difficulty opening her eyes. The lights flickered. I could leave her. Run away from whatever this was. I took a step towards the door. But it turned out I was like Macbeth. Too full of the milk of human kindness. When I let down Lilith's hair, dark strands came away with the pins. There was a grey streak I hadn't noticed before. Or maybe that was the wavering of the lights. Had to peel the nightgown off her slick skin. How was I supposed to get the blood stains out before tomorrow night? All those drips from her nose and the tear on the sleeve. The light started to flash wildly. My reflections blinked in and out of the mirror, as though we were caught in the middle of a stage effect. Lilith just sat trembling. It was only when I detached Eugene Greaves' watch from her girdle that she snapped to life. Careful with that. Flipping the watch over, I slotted the key into its hole. It turned with the grating noise like fingernails across slate. 
There were words scratched into the back of the case, not engraved by the jeweller, someone who'd carved them jaggedly with a nail or a pin. Homo fuge. What was that? A name? Latin? I recognised it from somewhere. I'd definitely heard it before. Did you see this, Lilith? What do you think it means? She didn't answer. Her nose was bleeding again. So I've been talking to Laura Purcell. We've been talking about her book, The Whispering Muse, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 